Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. This week on Protect and Serve, we flew across the water to the United States of America where I had the pleasure to sit down and interview former Veteran Affairs Special Agent Bruce Sackman. When veterans' hospital patients on the road to recovery suddenly die in increasing numbers, it's up to Special Agent in Charge Bruce Sackman to find out why. His shocking discovery tears open the hidden world of what goes on behind the bedside curtains when a killer medical practitioner like Harold Shipman here in the UK or Dr. Michael Swango in the United States decides a patient must die. In this episode of Protect and Serve, we talk to Bruce about the dark world of medical serial killers, doctors and nurses who murder the people who trust and rely on them for care. We get into everything from sinister motivations to the strategies these predators use to avoid detection, sometimes for years among the enshrined halls of our UK and US medical institutions. Next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. This week, we've head across the water to the United States of America to a chap that has spent over 30 years investigating some of the most peculiar and some of the most probably what would call scary investigations into people that we would ultimately think were looking after us in the medical industry. Bruce Sackman, welcome to Protect and Serve. How are you this morning? 
I'm fine, and thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting about this rather interesting and important topic. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I think just for context for our listeners out there, you and I met a few years ago at an Association of British Investigators um, annual general meeting where uh, you kindly gave us an insight into this fascinating book that you've written, Behind the Murder Curtain. But I think in terms of context, what we'd really like to know is what is VA, the Veterans Affairs, and what was your job in the Inspector General? Sure. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, In the United States, every major federal agency has an Office of Inspector General. And the purpose of that Office of Inspector General is to ferret out fraud, waste, and abuse in that particular agency. So if you're in the Department of Defense or um, the Department of Agriculture, they all have inserted in them offices of Inspector General. And so does the Department of Veterans Affairs, whose mission is to um, handle the benefits and medical services for our our nation's heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the VA Inspector General is a little bit unique compared to the other inspector generals because most inspector generals have an office of audit and an office of investigations. And the purpose of the office of audit, as the name implies, is to conduct audits. But the purpose of the office of investigation is to conduct internal investigations into the agency. So I was the special agent in charge of the Northeast Field Office of the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. And in that capacity, I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the Veterans Affairs hospital system from West Virginia to Maine. So that meant all the hospitals, all the outpatient clinics, and all the regional offices. And I was in that position for 25 years. And was investigations and the field of investigative work something you'd always always aspire to get involved in? Yeah, it really was. I was probably watching too many Colombo television shows and really <laughs> very interested in, in, the, in the line of work. And um, so I started out doing investigations for the Defense Department. It started out doing background investigations and then doing fraud investigations And then uh, Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, created these offices of inspector generals. And that gave us an opportunity to um, do more investigative work than was even available before. But one unique thing about the VA is not only did we have an office of investigations and an office of audit, but we also had an office of healthcare inspection, which was comprised of doctors and nurses who visited our hospitals to make sure that they were treating our veterans the way they they should be treated. So it was a unique Inspector General from that standpoint. So then at what point during your career in the VA did you discover these irregularities in the way that some of our medical practitioners in the U.S. were treating some of our veterans? When did that start? Because I assume that was never on your radar. No, not at all. In fact, I had a rather large uh, smorgasbord, if you will, of cases to pick and choose from outside of medical murders. Because hospitals, as you could imagine, are, um, well, they're almost like small cities. They procure everything from diapers to the most complex scientific equipment there is. And we have narcotics and we have um, 
all sorts of research going on. And there are so many potential crimes aside from murder that could occur at the hospital that I was quite busy until one day in the 1990s, I get a phone call that sort of changed my life. I got a phone call from the director, from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport Long Island VA Medical Center. And she said, Bruce, you're not gonna believe this, but there's a physician working here who spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. And I looked at the phone, like, is this some sort of joke? I mean, how could somebody pass a government background investigation and become a physician who spent time in jail for poisoning his coworkers and now treating our nation's heroes? It almost seemed impossible to me. It, it, It seemed like she must be mistaken. And she wasn't mistaken, it was actually true. So that's what started me, that one phone call back in the 1990s, and it involved a uh, physician by the name of Michael Swank. For seven years, there have been suspicions. Now there are formal charges. Dr. Michael Swango, who's been suspected of poisoning patients around the world, is now charged with what prosecutors call a reign of terror. And Michael Swango, I'll give you a little history of him. Please. Interesting guy. Um, when he was in medical school, he was known as Double O Swango, licensed to kill. Because oh, even, me. even his fellow students said, you know, every time this guy, Michael Swango, visits patients, they seem to expire unexpectedly. Something's going on. We don't know what it is. We can't really put our finger on it, you know, but, but something's going on. So they went to the dean. And they said, hey, Dean, we don't think this guy, Michael Swango, should be a doctor. And the dean said, what do you know? You're only students. I'm the (laughs) dean. I think he should be a doctor. You know what? I think he needs a little bit more training. So let's keep him like about six months longer. The rest of the class will graduate. We'll keep him six months longer and we'll give him some additional training and I'm sure he'll be fine. And that's exactly what happened. And then he went on uh, an internship at Ohio State University Medical Center, which is an excellent medical center, by the way. Mm. And he starts visiting patients. And one of the patients that he visited was a young gymnast. And her name was Cynthia McGee. Now, Cynthia McGee got into a car accident with another student. And she was actually improving until she gets a visit from Dr. Swango. Well, she dies unexpectedly. Swango doesn't get charged with that murder. The student who hit her with his car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide. But he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. It was actually Swango who killed Cynthia McGee. Well, the next thing you know, patients are dying unexpectedly in the Ohio State Medical Center. And they do an investigation but they can't figure it out. They suspect Swango, but they can't figure it out. Well, they certainly don't renew his internship. And then he goes to, in many ways, what was his first love to be an emergency medical technician because he loved the excitement of Mm. being on a scene when there's an accident, particularly with mass casualties. I mean, that was his dream. He really loved that the most. 
And um, so one day he's he's in the uh, in the office with his co-workers and he brings in some donuts for his co-workers. And he says, hey, guys, you know, you work so hard. Have some donuts on me. And they're eating donuts. And at night they all go home and they get deathly ill <clears throat> because he had sprinkled the donuts with arsenic. And then he calls them up and he says, tell me all the symptoms. Tell me everything that happened to you. Because this is an opportunity for him to relive the excitement of poisoning twice. Once when he actually sprinkles the arsenic on the donuts. But the second time is hearing how they suffered as a result of what he did. Well, these EMTs were not stupid. And they suspected something. So about two weeks later, Dr. Swango comes in with uh, some iced tea. And he says, hey guys, I have some iced tea for you. And I said, oh, thanks a lot, Dr. Swang. Oh, j- just leave it here and we'll have it later. So they take the iced tea and they have it tested and it's loaded with arsenic and they call the police. And the police do an excellent investigation. To make a long story short, they go to his house, they find the arsenic, they find books on poisoning. And he actually uh, goes to trial, but he waives a jury trial and the judge sentences him to three years in jail for poisoning his co-workers. Just three years? Just three years. Wow. Now, you wouldn't think that in the United States of America or England or any other civilized nation that you could spend three years in prison for poisoning your co-workers mm. and come out and be a physician again. But that is exactly what happened. Because he came out three years later and being a sociopath, psychopath. He was such a charming guy that he came out and he charmed everybody. And he came out with this this story. And he says, look, you know, I was in the Marines. I'm a tough ex-Marine. And I got the barroom brawl. So I only got sentenced to six months in jail for beating somebody up. But here's a piece of paper from the governor that he forged that says my civil rights are restored. And the hospital said, oh, great. Come on back. We have a shortage of physicians. We could certainly use you. (laughs) You know, he's working on the West Coast of the United States, and he's actually doing a pretty good job. He meets a nurse at a VA hospital, and they got engaged, and everything is fine. And then all of a sudden, the news story comes out that he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. Oh, well, everything uh, is not so good anymore. No. And his fiance is just shocked. And she breaks up with him and she travels back across the country to her parents in Virginia. And she says, you know, I really love this Dr. Swango. But when I was living with him, I was getting these headaches. I don't know what it was. You know, I was getting these headaches. But I'm starting to feel better now. And she's feeling better until... Uh, the doorbell rings, and it's Swango, and he charms his way back into her life. And then she starts getting these headaches again. And about a month or two later, she uh, says, I can't take this anymore. She goes to the park, she takes out a gun, and she blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can, because even though her body was cremated. The family kept a lock of her hair, which we tested, and it was loaded with arsenic. So you see, Swango was even killing his own fiance. 
because everybody was a target of opportunity for him. And then one day, to make a long story short, as I said, I get a phone call from the chief of psychiatry at Northport, Long Island, about this guy. And I find it really incredible to believe. So I hop in the car with one of the agents in my office, and we go talk to him. And he is a handsome, charming. If you didn't, I mean, he looked like a movie star. He looked like he just came right off the golf course. If I didn't know better, I'd want to introduce him to my own daughter. I mean, he's a handsome ex-Marine doctor. If she brought him home, I go, wow, this is terrific. You know, what a catch. So he starts giving me this story again about the barroom brawl and all that kind of stuff. And I say, wow, that's really interesting, Dr. Swango. You know, thank you very much for clearing this up for me. But since I'm here in, in your room, do you mind if I look around a little bit? I just want to look around a little bit. I go, oh, no. And that's when his charming attitude changed. Wow. Had me leave. And the next thing you know, Swango's in Zimbabwe, Africa. Just leaves. He took off. Took off. Took off, went to Zimbabwe, Africa. And in Zimbabwe, Africa, he's killing women and children and pregnant women. But he had to turn to the United States to renew his passport because he was about to move on to another country. And that's when we arrested him. But not for murdering anybody because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody out on Long Island where I was. But we had evidence that he committed what is every American federal agent's favorite crime, lying to the government. If you lie to the government, if you lie to an agent of the government, that's a felony. Wow. So he actually got three years in jail for lying to me, to lying to the government. And that gave us a window of opportunity to try to determine if Swango had murdered anybody out on Long Island. Swango inveigled his way into the confidence of hospital administrators across the country and the world. Once in their trust and in their employ, he utilized his skills to search for victims and take their lives. Now, I had never done a homicide case before in my life. All right, my whole background was all the other crimes in the hospital. A lot of white collar crimes, theft, narcotics diversion, but never, never a homicide case. So I said to my boss, I said, you know, look, I'm excited to do this, but I've never done this. He said, don't worry, Bruce, we're going to hook you up with somebody. And he hooked me up with a Dr. Michael Bodden. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He had a show in the United States called Autopsy. And anytime there's a... Uh, celebrity murder or something, he got called. I said, now, now, how do we do this? How do we determine if this guy Swango actually murdered anybody? And I asked, he says, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna pull every medical record of every patient who was at the Northport VA when Swango was there because he used to walk around. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering how he wound up at Northport, Stony Brook University has a teaching arrangement with Northport. So in order to come to the Northport VA to do a residency, he had to go in front of a board of physicians at Stony Brook. And guess what residency he was in? 
he was in psychiatry. So that meant he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be in this program, which he did. Now, is that charming or is that not charming? It's incredible. Oh, it's incredible. So now this is how we begin. We start by pulling all the medical records of all the patients who were at the VA at that time. Well, who's going to review this? <clears throat> well, Dr. Bonin, as a forensic pathologist, was going to do this. But also, mm -hmm. we assembled the team. Because no one investigator, and I don't care if you're the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes, you cannot do this case yourself. It takes a team. So the next person on the team was a physician who's expert in chart reviews. He could go through the medical records and he can make a determination as to whether or not that patient should have expired when he did. And let me talk about that for a second because Dr. Bonin explained this to me. He said, Bruce, natural death is like shutting off a fan. You shut off the fan and the blades slowly, slowly stop. He says, but these people didn't expire that way. These people, it's like turning off a light bulb. They're bright one minute and dark the next. And what's interesting is that these people were not expected to expire when they did. You know, if you ever had, God forbid, a family member or somebody in the hospital that was very sick mm. and the family expected the, the, you know, dad or mom to pass or even the staff knew it. So death was not unexpected. But in these particular patients, it was just the opposite. Many times they were actually improving only to get a phone call from Dr. Swango saying, hey, your dad passed away unexpectedly. Let me explain to you the last 30 minutes of his life. And he would go into great detail of how the patient had suffered during those last 30 minutes to the family. Because once again, this is his second bite of the apple. His second bite of the thrill of murdering people. Not just the actual murder, but reliving it again when telling the story to the family. I mean, it's pretty terrible. So we have this doctor who looks at the charts and he looked at the charts and he determined along with another group of people we had, which at the time was a relatively new profession, but it's pretty common now. It's called forensic nursing. These are nurses that are trained in both forensic science and nursing, and they could speak to investigators and lay people and sort of translate what the doctors yeah. are saying. And in my case, kind of dumb it down for me. So I really could understand the science. And they were just, they were just phenomenal. We narrowed it down to six patients that we think had died unexpectedly. And there's no indication in their medical records why they died yet. When you look at the death certificates, all the death certificates kind of read the same. They kind of read um, myocardial infarction or some kind of heart ailment, you know, which is sort of a catch-all for everything. And that was that was a, a red flag as well. All right. So the next step is um, we have to exhume the bodies. We because these people are all buried, you know. So we had to go to the families. Now imagine getting a visit like this. Um, 
Uh, good afternoon. My name is Bruce Ackman. I'm with the Inspector General's Office of the VA Hospital. Uh, we have reason to believe that your dad's death at the VA was of a suspicious nature. Can we have your permission to go to the cemetery and exhume his body? Imagine getting a visit like that. You, you couldn't think of anything more worse to receive, really. How distressing. Oh, yes. And I must say the families were just so nice, so understanding. I mean, uh, once in a while, they would actually want to come to the gravesite and witness the exhumation themselves. Mm. Other times they said, no, they just wanted us to promise them that we would be respectful and return the body in the grave in a very respectful manner, which of course we were. And if the family showed up, sometimes my agents would bring flowers, you know, to the daughter or the mother. I mean, we understood what they were going. The granddaughter of one alleged victim, Thomas Sam Marco, cried when she heard the news. I kept saying that he's the devil and get him out of the hospital. And we didn't listen to him. So when we found all, all this out, you can imagine how upset we were. So next thing, the first time in my life, I find myself at a cemetery with a backhoe and it's digging up the gravesite and the coffin comes up out of the ground and usually there's like a lot of water that drips out of it. And then Dr. Bonin jumps into the gravesite and starts taking soil samples. I said, what is he doing? He says, well, Bruce, you see, we have to see if there's arsenic in the soil, because if there's arsenic in the soil, the defense will claim that he wasn't poisoned by arsenic, that there was arsenic in the soil, and that's what creeped into yeah. the body. It's leached into the body. Right. So then I find myself at the Suffolk County Medical Examiners with all these dead bodies laying around. I mean, this is a culture, a little bit of a culture shock, and we've never done this before. Some people can't handle it. I, I was okay. I was okay. But some people, I remember we once brought one of the prosecutors in there. He walked in, turned around and walked out. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't handle it. Yeah, which, oh, which, which, which I understand. So next thing you know, Michael Bonin is, is opening. He's doing this Y incision and he's opening up the body and he takes out a heart. He says, you see this heart, Bruce? Yeah, he says. Does it look like anything's wrong in this heart? Oh, what do I know? I don't know. No, he said, no, there's nothing wrong with this heart. This death certificate is wrong. This is not myocardial infarction. There's something external that was administered to this body. And this is what killed this guy. All right. And I don't know what it is, but somebody on our team is a toxicologist. And so we have to find out. So we went to this firm in the United States called the Reader's Lab. It's the largest private medical forensic lab in the country. And I said, look, are we going to be able to find in embalmed tissue what the cause of death was? I mean, what substance is still traceable in this embalmed tissue? And Dr. Reader's I said, hey, Bruce, don't worry about it. He says, we've got this new machine. Well, what is it? It's called the high-performance liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometer. Holy cow. Oh, normal spelling. <laughs> hey, look, Bruce, you couldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. But I tell you, it does work. And so we take a little sample and we put it in this machine. It's like something out of Willy Wonka. You know, it goes around, 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 around. And eventually we come out. And they made a determination that two substances 
were injected into these patients and there was no medical reason for those substances to be in there. Okay? One substance was epinephrine, which is adrenaline, which will speed up your heart and if not used properly, can kill you. And the other substance was succinylcholine in the hospital sucks. with sucks, right. And what that is, that is a paralytic. If they want to put a tube down you, it actually paralyzes you. And there was no medical reason for those substances to be in these bodies. So now it's time for Swango to um, get out of prison. And he thinks he's just going to hop on a plane and go back to Africa or somewhere and start killing people again. Uh, not so fast. Because we actually had him indicted for a number of murders at the Northport VA Medical Center. And in addition, with a stroke of luck, the United States had just entered into an extradition treaty with the government of Zimbabwe. And they had an arrest warrant for him. They were just chomping at the bit for wow. us to return him. And they would do their justice with Dr. Swango. And we confronted him with this. And we said, look, Dr. Swango, if you go to trial, and even if you should be found not guilty, we're just going to put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe. Good luck, buddy. Good luck over there. Well, I think that helped convince him not to go to trial and to plead guilty. The timing of the indictment is no accident. Swango was set to be released from a federal prison this weekend. He served three and a half years for lying on his job application at the Northport VA. Now, instead of being released, he'll be returned to Long Island to face murder charges. He did. And then it was time for his sentencing. And sentencings are very, very dramatic because... This is when the family comes in and the family has an opportunity to talk about dad, how dad served in the army or the Navy. Like a victim impact statement. Yes, yes. And it's very moving because they're actually there. Sometimes they had pictures of dad, they had mementos of dad. But Swango couldn't care less because what happened to the victim means nothing to Swango. Well, the only thing that meant something to him was the excitement of actually killing people, right? So then he gets up and the judge asks him to explain exactly what you did. And Swango stood at attention like a Marine and looked straight ahead and said, he used a paralytic to murder these patients. And then he got sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. But the judge said something I had never heard before or since. And the judge said, look, Dr. Swango, right now there is no parole in the federal system. But if Congress should change the law and uh, parole should be instituted, your parole is denied in advance. So he wow. can get out no matter what. And after that case, that's when all of a sudden I got introduced to the world of medical serial killers. And then I started getting calls from around the country because we were successful from around the country and even around the world about these medical serial killers, something I had never even thought about until Swango sort of entered my life. One point I want to pick up on in terms of Swango and these these kind of individuals is the difference in crime scenes that you often would often associate with a murder. Because during a murder, there's crime scene, there's fingerprints, there might be uh, ballistics evidence, there may be blood splatter. But here we're dealing with people that have a wealth of medications in front of them, which if used 
inappropriately have been shown to kill people in your particular case. How do you start to differentiate as to what is illicit, what has been used badly, and the difference? There must be some challenges there. Challenges um, is the understatement of the year. Um, when we, as, as, as you said, a typical crime scene, like you see in a movie or my Columbo television show, is um, there's usually a body right there, right? Yeah. And, and the lab boys are there, and you have DNA and uh, forensics and, and, and this science and that science. But what is a typical hospital crime scene on a suspicious death? By the time uh, law enforcement comes, not only is there no body because the body has probably already been removed and buried, but the entire crime scene, if you will, has been scrubbed to surgical standards. So there's nothing there. Yeah. Unless, of course, you know where to look, which took me a number of years to learn. <laughs> but there's usually nothing there because even the, the feeding tubes and the lines and the other um, and, and the, the injections, they're, they're all gone. They're all thrown away. They're all put in what they call a shops container and all re removed. So what evidence is there? Well, this is what the evidence will be. First of all, there's always some electronic evidence, especially nowadays, because there are so many electronic devices. And a number of these electronic devices retain evidence for a long time. As a matter of fact, when, when we teach this to law enforcement, we tell them if the device prints or if the device has an alarm, that yeah. means it has some evidence in it. But most cops, and you know, I, th I think we should talk about this a minute. What happens when, a, when the average police officer gets called to these cases, okay? Yeah. Well, this is the way these cases usually start. They start like this. They say, you know, every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. So does that mean that Nurse Bruce is a serial killer? Well, of course not. It doesn't mean he's a serial killer. Hey, look, maybe Nurse Bruce has the most complex cases, okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe there are legitimate reasons for this, but that's how so many of these cases start. And like I said previously, what's interesting about Nurse Bruce's cases is that these patients were not expected to expire when they did. And that is really a big difference, all right? So eventually, some coworker, a nurse or physician will go to management and say, you know what, there's something wrong with this nurse, Bruce, because this is what's happening. And management will say, um, did you actually see nurse Bruce kill anybody? Well, I didn't actually see nurse Bruce kill anybody, but this is what's happening. Well, don't you think there could be a legitimate reason for this? I mean, do you want the word to get out in the public that we have a member of our staff that's intentionally murdering people. Do you know what can happen here? They could close the hospital. We could all lose our jobs. Is that something you want to happen? And I want to ask you, you a question, uh, Miss Nurse or, or a doctor who's making these allegations. Is your background so perfect? I mean, if we drug tested you right now, are you going to come up positive for some drugs? Is your license and all your training up to snuff? The reason why I ask this is because when you make these allegations, 
you yourself, you know, sort of become subject to the investigation because you are making these allegations. Are you sure you want to go through this? And that'll turn away a number of whistleblowers, but some of them, to their credit, will say, bring it on. So the management will say this. They'll say, okay, I tell you what we're going to do. Just for you, nurse, we are going to appoint a board of our very special doctors and nurses, and they're going to look into this Nurse Bruce cases, and we'll get back to you. So who's on this board? All employees of the hospital. Nobody from the outside. Everybody with a vested interest to make sure that the reputation of the hospital remains stellar because we want to have a reputation that we save lives, not that we're taking lives, all right? And even once in a while, you know what? We may even do our own in-house autopsy just to make sure everything is right. But a hospital autopsy is not like a forensic autopsy that Dr. Mm. Blonin does. A hospital autopsy, and they're very rarely done, by the way. They're almost never done because the insurance companies don't want to pay for it. And doctors will say, oh, we have all this new modern scientific equipment. We We don't need to do it anymore, which is really terrible because the AMA came out and the AMA itself said that and I forgot the number, it was something like 50% of the cause of death on death certificates are wrong anyway. Wow. But we'll do it. And we do um, our own internal autopsy. And the question is, could the patient have expired from one or more of his natural disease processes? Well, the reason they're in an intensive care unit or some serious place like that is because they have so much wrong with them. So yes, the patient could have expired from one or more of their disease processes. In fact, when I was looking at the file of some of our veterans in Northport, some of the older ones, I didn't know you could still be alive and have this much wrong with you. And then we had approved death. All right. So what will happen is that management will come back to the, the complainant and say, look, this is what we did. And we came out with a determination that all these patients died as a result of their natural disease processes. Then the police come. All right. All right, Officer Lawrence, um, thank you very much for your concern. We were very concerned about these allegations as well. So this is what we did. We appointed a board of our very best physicians and nurses. They looked into these cases. On one or two occasions, we even did autopsies. We reviewed the death certificates. And we came out with the conclusion that all the patients died as a result of their natural disease processes. Now, if your department wants to challenge this report Mm. and continue the investigation, knock yourself out. But this is what we're prepared to say. Now, how many police officers? the most well-meaning police officers are just going to say, thank you very much, Mr. Hospital Director. They're going to take that report. They're going to go back. They're going to close out that case, and they're going to go on to the next case. Because you know what? Most cops don't even want to do investigations in hospitals. Look, most cops don't become cops because they're good in chemistry and biology, right? So we're very easily challenged by the science which we probably don't understand. And even the law 
you know, in America, it can get very confusing with this HIPAA law. We have something called the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it gets very confusing for cops. Like, what documents can I get? What documents can I get? Do I need a subpoena? Do I need a court order? I mean, this is all very, very confusing. Um, and now I have this report that says everything is fine. So how many police departments, given how many other cases they have, are just going to pass this one by? And this is why, one of the reasons why, medical serial killers kill so many people and get away with it. You know, you're traditional serial killer, if you will, kill somewhere between three and seven people. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're amateurs, amateurs compared to my medical serial killers. The average, I have many serial killers that have killed 30 people, 60 people, even over 100 people. And the reason being is, one, they work in an environment where death is a common everyday occurrence, all right? Death at a hospital, death at a nursing home, that's a common everyday occurrence. You know, it's not in some public place where there's going to be a big investigation and uh, a death at a hospital. So, uh, you know, death, death is, is not uncommon and expected. And then management will actually support the person who is being accused because they're so worried about the reputation of their hospital that they will actually support the person and hoping, saying a little prayer, saying a little prayer, that that person will move on to the next hospital and it won't be their problem anymore because he's gone, she's gone. You know, it's, it's not our, our problem anymore. That's one of the reasons why medical serial killers are able to successfully kill so many people. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Veteran Affairs Special Agent Bruce Sackman. In episode two, Bruce talks us through the moment he was taken by UK detectives round the streets of where Dr. Harold Shipman committed his horrific crimes, killing more than 300 patients in his care. He made house calls, and I had the opportunity to walk through the streets with a detective after the case, and he said, Bruce, Dr. Shipman killed somebody in that house, and somebody in that house, and somebody in that house. Next, on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.